So our first Bible reading is in Luke 18, from verses 9 to 17, which is on page 901 on the Pew Bibles. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Continuing on from verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the uh, sorry, Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, church. Nice to see you. This is our, actually our last uh, sermon in our Luke series. and It's been uh, pretty confronting, hasn't it? I find it challenging just preaching these sermons. Um, we come to another challenging parable tonight, so I'm going to pray for God's Spirit to, uh, yeah, to teach us and to comfort us and correct us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you promise that your word will not return to you empty. And so we expect, Lord, your word to do a, a mighty work in us and through us. Uh, would you teach, rebuke, correct, encourage, challenge, comfort we lay ourselves before you now, asking that you would do whatever you need to do to conform us more into the likes of your Son. So in Jesus' name we pray. 
two people uh, walked into church one Sunday evening. Dan loved church. Dan lived for church. Turned up every Sunday at 7 p.m. He had his Bible in his hand. It was so well-thumbed because he had his daily quiet times. He came to the prayer meetings. He loved his connect group. He served at kids' church on a Sunday morning. He came to church twice a day. He was on the welcoming team, writing the name tags. He, he loved music. He had the church by the bridge, Spotify playlist on all the time. And Dan is a, was a good man. He was faithful to his wife. He was a, a doting father to his three daughters. He was upright. He was honest. He was kind. And Dan strolled into church and he came right down the centre aisle and sat on a third row. He loved the third row. And he smiled at people. He welcomed people. And he thought, oh, I better pray. And so Dan sat there. He put his head in his hands and he just thought about his week and thought about his life. And he thought, oh, God, how wonderful it is to be me. God, I'm such a good person and a a nice person, and I'm so Christian. God, how good it is to have nothing to confess and nothing to be shamed about. Now, Stan, on the other hand, was feeling quite uncomfortable. Uh, Stan didn't quite know why he was at church that Sunday evening. He'd never been to church before, but he just felt this compulsion to come. And so when Dan saw Stan walk into his church, Dan said, how dare he be in my church, that wretched man? And that's how Stan was feeling. Stan knew that he was really quite a horrible person. Uh, He had offended so many people with his caustic tongue. He had had three failed marriages. He was now living in a fairly abusive relationship with his fourth partner. He was not a good man at all. What right did he have to be in church that night? And so Stan sat right at the back, right in the back left-hand corner. And when they opened the Bible, he didn't have a Bible. He'd never read the Bible. When they sung the songs, he didn't know a single word of the songs. But there was something about the lyric of those songs, talking about how God is for us and God is with us and God's mercy is more and how God is a good, good father. And then the preacher talked about the Lord Jesus Christ and how in Christ no one was beyond forgiveness and no one was too bad for God. And Stan sat at the back of the church and he put his head in his hands and he just sobbed and he sobbed and he just cried out, Oh God, I'm so sorry. Please would you forgive me? I am such a bad person. Let me ask you a question. Which of those two people went home, went home right with God that night? Proud, religious, self-righteous Dan or humble, wretched, repentant Stan? Which one? And I've retold that story to try and recapture some of the shock that the first hearers would have experienced because this is a shocking parable. Two men go to the temple to pray. Both think they have prayed, but they go home that night and only one person is right with God. Verse 14. Jesus said, I tell you, 
that this man, the, the tax collector, the stand, the, the wretched, humble, repentant man, rather than the other one, the Pharisee, the dance of this world, went home justified, went home right and forgiven and cleansed in God's sight. That is the shock. And our question tonight is this, what sort of person is acceptable to God? Who does God accept? Who has a right relationship with God? I want to start with the roadblocks. The roadblocks to a relationship with God. Luke lists three barriers, three things that will stop you having a real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're focused mainly on the first one. And in a word, it's religion. Religion. That is this Pharisee. The Pharisees were the, the churchmen, the people who took their Bible seriously. They studied theology, they knew the Greek, they knew the Hebrew. They were the ones who were defending biblical truth in a world that had moved on. And this Pharisee that we meet is a good man. He's a pious man. He lives an upright, honest life. See what he says in verse 11? God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a robber. So you can trust me with your money. I, I always tell the truth. I'm not an evildoer, he says, verse 11. I'm an honest man. I I handle power correctly. I don't abuse people. I'm not an adulterer, verse 11. I've been faithful to my wife. I've never looked at another woman, and I've never dabbled with pornography. So here's Mr. Nice Guy. Here's Mr. Clean-cut, church-going guy. And verse 12 tells us he takes his religion very seriously. Verse 12, he said, I fast twice a week, even though the Old Testament law said you only had to fast once a year. I give a tenth of all I get, not just my crops, but everything. I, I tithe everything to God. So this man, this religious man, he held nothing back from God. He's not a nominal religious person. His religion impacted everything about him, his, his marriage, his money, his motives, his actions. And we can learn lots from him, can't we? Now, it is so good that he didn't abuse people. It is so good he's faithful to his wife. He, it is so good that he's generous and kind and respectful. They're all good things. But like Dan in our example, he's so nice, he's so kind, he's so religious, he's so good. We can hardly believe that all would not be well for this man. Now, surely God would be pleased with this kind of guy. But not according to verse 14. See the shock? This religious man did not go home justified. He didn't go home right with God because the issue in verse 14 is that he is exalting himself. See that? All those who exalt themselves will be humble, will be brought low. And this is an example of a man who is puffed up. He thinks he's important. He thinks he's so religious and so wonderful. He's an example of the the self-righteous kind of person of verse 9, to some who are confident of their own righteousness, not not the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but their own abilities, and they look down on everyone else. Look more closely at what he prayed. What's, What's the repeated word in verse 11? See if you can spot it. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. Here it is, God I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Do you spot it? 
He's just praying about himself. He's actually saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I am so marvellous. I thank you that I am so wonderful. I'm so nice. I'm so generous. I'm so good. God, I love me. I love me. And I'm sure you do too, God. That's this self-righteous, self-exaltation. And you see in verse 11 how he, he lists all the wrong things he hadn't done forgetting all the wrong things that he had done or even the good things that he should have done that he failed to do. We're good at that, aren't we? In that time of confession where we say to be just our mind goes, I haven't done that and I haven't done that and I haven't done that and we neglect the fact that all these wrong things that we have done. See, he, this man thought that God would be pleased with him. That was his biggest mistake. And I do think it's a mistake made by millions of religious people around the world today. Yes, by the world standards, this man was a very good man. But we're not judged by the world standards, are we? What did Jesus say in verse 19? He says, no one is good except God alone. That is the standard of goodness. If you want to be good, the standard is perfection. And compared to the next man, he was a good man. But compared to God, he's just another sinner. And this Pharisee failed to recognize that he needed forgiveness. God hates religion. Can you imagine walking to doctors tomorrow morning, you walk into doctor's surgery and you say, good morning, doctor. I've just come to tell you how fit and healthy I really am. I'm just, a, I'm just this perfect specimen of physical health. My, my heart is so strong and my lung, gosh, the capacity of my lung is enormous. And look at my biceps, they are bulging. Gosh, I am wonderful. Look at me. I'm not like those wretched specimens, miserable people in your waiting rooms. I'm perfect. What did your doctor say to you? Why did you bother coming? What's the point except to parade yourself as a, one kind, a kind of one-man medical beauty show? Now, had you let the doctor examine you, they might have found the high blood pressure and the mysterious lump and the trace of diabetes, but you're so self-confident, you're so proud, you think you don't need anything. And that is this Pharisee. Why did he bother going to the temple? To make himself feel good? That is the rich ruler of verses 18 to 30. Do you spot how arrogant he is? When Jesus says, you know the commandments, verse 20, uh, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honour your father and mother. And he has the audacity to say, yep, I've kept all of those. I- I'm so good, I'm so religious, and God hates it. There are, there are two other roadblocks, but to be honest, I don't want to focus on them tonight because I feel like we've covered them so many times in Luke. There is the, the roadblock of riches, of wealth, of money, uh, Jesus talked lots about that, hasn't he? Remember the rich fool who built those bigger and bigger barns and his, his life was taken from him or the rich man who ignored Lazarus and he went to hell and Lazarus went to heaven. And this rich man here in verses 18 to 30, he, he goes away sad. He's sad because Jesus has asked him to give up something that he, he, he loves so much his money, his riches, his wealth. See, for this rich man, money is his status, money is identity, money is security. 
It makes him feel so good when people notice the house he lives in or the car that he drives or the pool in the backyard or the clothes that he's wearing. He's a somebody. And I hope you know that money can be an easy idol. And the third roadblock is relationships. Much more subtle, this one. Is there in verse 29. No one who's left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age. He's saying the good things, relationships are a good thing and a beautiful thing and a right thing and important thing. But please don't find your security in your marriage or in your friendships or in your family life. They don't define you. They're the three roadblocks, religion, riches and relationships. But the root of them all is just one word. And this one word will stop you from knowing God. And the word is pride. Arrogant, self-confident pride. Pride is horrible. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, if I had one sermon, if I only had one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. Or listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, there's one vice of which no person in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in somebody else, and of which hardly anybody except Christians ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. And that essential vice, that utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that, they are mere flea bites in comparison. Pride leads to every other, device, every other vice. And as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud person is always looking down on things and down on people. And of course, as long as you look down, you cannot see something that's above you. And this Pharisee is a very proud man. I fast, I tithe, I come to church, I help at kids' church, I help in the community, I sing, I pray, I serve God, I am so good. So let me ask you, is there a hint of pride in you? I know the answer is yes, because there's a hint of pride in me as well. We all suffer. We're good at comparing ourselves with other people, aren't we, and smugly feeling pleased with ourselves, and we're good at reading shocking things happening in the world and we're thinking under our self-righteous breath, oh, I could never imagine doing that. And the counsellors say that invariably at someone's first counselling session, people list everything that's wrong with other people and why their problems are never their own fault. And Jesus writes this parable for, for proud people, for people who are confident of their own righteousness. It's written for me, it's written for you. Maybe you're sitting here tonight thinking, oh, my friend needs to hear this sermon. I want to challenge this church. I challenge us to pray that God would strip us of every hint of pride. And that's a really dangerous thing to pray. I prayed that about 15 years ago when we started this church. And God brought me so low within the first five months to a, to a state I've never been in my life before. It was so awful, but so good for me to be humbled like that. About 10 years ago, my dear friend Ed Yorston loved me enough to give me a paper called 50 Fruits of Pride. 
And it's not a pleasant read, but it's a very, very important read. I'm so thankful to Ed, he did that to me. I'll just read a few of them. Pride is when you want to be well-known or important, to make a name for yourself, to be a somebody, to have a position or a title. Pride is when I'm overly competitive, I always want to win or come out on top, and it bothers me when I don't. Pride is when I want to impress people. I like to people to notice my clothes, my vehicle, my furniture, my house, what I look like, my physical appearance, my accomplishments, what school I went to. Pride is I, I, I like to draw attention to myself. I like to be the centre of attention and will do or say things to draw attention to me. Pride is when I tend to be a bit deceptive, hiding the truth about myself, especially my sins and my weaknesses. I don't really want people to know who I really am. Pride is the desire to receive recognition and credit for what I do. I, I do love it when people see what I do and let me know they've noticed and I feel so hurt and offended when, no one, when nobody notices. Pride is my tendency to be self-sufficient. I don't live with this constant awareness that my every breath is dependent upon the will of my God. I could go on and on and on. And my point is simply that all of us struggle with pride. And God hates it. And God wants us to get rid of it. What's the antidote of pride? What's the opposite of pride? Humility. And that's our second point. The right attitude for a relationship with God is just humble dependence. This is saying, God, I can bring nothing. I am a nobody. I can offer you nothing. There's nothing good about me. And that is the tax collector. Just so you know, the tax collectors were the Outcast, they were hated, they were dishonest, they were spat on, they were despised. They're not the kind of person you'd invite for a high tea with your mum. And so nobody would be surprised when the Pharisee reacted like he did. It would be like a known murderer walking to church and we're going, What right has that person got to be in church tonight? But verse 14 tells us that this tax collector, this no hoper, this outcast went home cleansed, restored, forgiven, and free because he was humble. Deep, selfless humility. And you spot it in his attitude, don't you? Verse 13. The tax collector stood at a distance. He stood a long way off, far off. He felt ill at ease. And it's not just that he felt uneasy in church. It's that he felt this, this real sense of God's presence and his unworthiness to be there. So verse 13, he wouldn't even look up to heaven. He, he didn't cast his eyes up to God because he knew he didn't deserve anything from God. He, he's beating his breast, verse 13. It's a, a sign of grief and distress and pain and sorrow and repentance. His, his attitude, his position, his posture is one of remorse and humility and unworthiness. And that's the attitude that God expects from me and you. And I think that's why Luke links it to verse 15. People were bringing babies to Jesus for Jesus to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked Jesus. But Jesus called children to himself and said, let the children come to me. 
Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Let's think about these babies, these little children. What, what, what do babies have to offer? You ever held a child? You ever held a four-month-old baby? That four-month-old has, has nothing to boast about. They can't feed themselves, they can't clothe themselves, they can't bathe themselves, they can't change themselves. They don't parade their good works or what they've achieved in life. They've done nothing apart from being carried around and fed. They are totally dependent on other people. And that is the attitude that Jesus wants us to bring. We are totally dependent on our Heavenly Father. Nothing in our hand we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. That was the tax collector. You can tell by the way he prayed. He's not much of a prayer, is he? He doesn't have fancy jargon language. He doesn't use our fancy evangelical cliches. He just prays. No self-praise, no comparison with other people, no attempt to bridge the gap to God with talk of good deeds or good works or church activity. It's just a simple prayer. Do you spot it, verse, verse 13? Seven words. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Or more literally, the sinner, because at that moment in time, he felt like he was the only sinner in the whole world. He knew that he deserved nothing for God. He knew he deserved God's anger, God's wrath, God's punishment. He knew he was a bad person, so he's begging for God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And the verdict is, verse 14, that this man, this man went home justified. It's a legal word to me. He's not guilty. He's acquitted. He's declared innocent. There's no record of his wrongs. And I love the end of verse, 13, verse 14. Those who humble themselves before God, here's the promise, will be exalted will be lifted high, will be praised in God's side, uh, not just exalted on the last day, it's not just all about eternal life. We'll be exalted now. We enjoy the blessings now of walking with God and knowing forgiveness now and the Christian family that are closer than brothers and sisters, that intimacy with God, the security in Christ. Have you got it? When you're humble before God, he exalts you. Not because of who you are, but because of what he's done. It's a stark contrast, isn't it? The Pharisee was proud, the tax was humble. The Pharisee thought that God needed him, and the tax just needed God. And the Pharisee went to church to be seen, and the tax went to church as a helpless man in need of healing. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you know what that word mercy means? It's a beautiful word, isn't it? Mercy means that you do not get what you rightly deserve. It's the opposite of grace. Grace is God's undeserved favour. The mercy is you deserve punishment, you deserve wrath, but you don't get that. Instead, you get free forgiveness. That is mercy. Remember the mother who sought the pardon of her son from Emperor Napoleon? But the emperor said it was her son's second offence, and so 
justice demanded that her son be put to, de- put to death. And the mother said these words. She said, Napoleon, I don't ask for justice, but I plead for mercy. And the emperor said this, but, but he, he does not deserve mercy. He doesn't deserve mercy. And the mother said these beautiful words, Sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well then, said the emperor, he, I will have mercy. And her son was saved. It would not be mercy if he deserved it. Isn't that a beautiful truth? I don't want justice. I really, really don't want justice for the way I've lived. Dread the thought that God give me justice for all the things I've done and said and thought and my motives being. Dread the thought of that. What I need, what you need is mercy. But please never think that mercy is cheap and easy for God to give. See where these two men are, verse 10? two men went up to the temple to pray the temple was the place where there's an altar the temple was a place where there'd be bloodstains from the sacrifice of all these animals because for God's mercy to be given blood had to be shed for God's mercy to be given someone else had to take that punishment for you for God's mercy to be experienced today the Lord Jesus Christ had to shed his own blood That's the only way that God could be merciful to you is if God himself bore your punishment and your shame so that you might experience mercy. So please never think that was cheap or easy for God. Why would God need to send his son if if he's going to be chuffed by all our religious works? Why would Jesus need to die if, if it's about doing good things or if our riches or our relationship could bring us that eternal security, they cannot. All God longs for and asks is just humble dependence and begging for mercy. So I'll leave you with this question. Have you asked God for mercy? And do you do that every day? Maybe you're here tonight and you've been a Christian for many, many, many years. And maybe you remember the day when you asked for mercy for that first time. But, but my fear is that maybe like me, we just subtly slip into thinking that all the stuff that we do is actually going to please God in some way and earn his forgiveness or earn his favour. And they're good things that we do. Don't mishear me. But once you start to think that you are important and as somebody, you become this proud religious person. We need to ask daily, don't we, for God's mercy. There's no room for boasting. Even today, I need to ask for mercy. As J.C. Riley said, let's rise from our beds every morning with this deep conviction that we are but debtors. And every day, we have more mercies than we ever, ever deserve. So it's that daily dependence, that daily humility and daily begging for mercy. But maybe you're here tonight for the very first time and like Stan, you're thinking, what, are, what am I doing here? I don't deserve to be in church. I'm such a bad, awful person. If that is you, can I just say ditto? You're just like every one of us here. 
none of us are good enough for God. We're all asking for mercy. And today is a great day to ask for mercy. Just say, God, I need you. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Please forgive me. And when you do that, you you walk out justified, right with God, enjoying God. Let's think back to Dan and Stan. Which of those two men went home right with God? Proud, religious Dan or humble, repentant Stan? And I hope you know which one you should be. Let me pray. I'm going to give you space by yourself to ask God for mercy. God, have mercy on us, sinners as we are.